0: Please follow with us Psalm 118 open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord this is the gate of the Lord the righteous shall enter through it I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever Matthew 21 Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the mouth of to the Mount of Olives then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So I I suspected Friday night when John was sick that I would be doing this, but I really had too full of a day scheduled for Saturday anyway. So I found out last night I was going to do this. I wrestled at at sometime between 4.30 and 5 this morning. I was actually wrestling with three possibilities. The one was just a joke, but but the first possibility was I was thinking of having Amber Johnson share on how at the Grace Christian Fellowship... uh, game night last night the one young lady that was playing Texas Hold'em beat all the men (laughs) but uh she uh, first Amber's just not the kind to trash talk so I decided that probably wasn't a good message but uh (laughs) uh and besides since Carla's sick Amber and Catherine are cooking uh the dinner although I think we're just having like a fruit salad or something light today um so that came down to uh did I do it would be a lot easier for me to just do the next uh lesson in this in the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series we're doing at 9:30 uh because I'm not that great at doing what John does and uh so um but nevertheless it's Palm Sunday so I decided I'll I'll do my best to do sort of the kind of thing John does but not nearly as well and in fact This is kind of a lot of meditations on on Jesus' triumphal entry to to Jerusalem, but they're sort of disjointed. But each one's a pretty good point in themselves. We'll hope the Lord will help us uh, deliver them well enough to uh, to encounter them a little bit. So, um, John just read the scriptures that are listed at Roman numeral one on your handout. Uh, I some of the key ones in there. I kind of just repeated. And then, of course, in Matthew 21, he's quoting some from Psalm 18 or Psalm 118, but he's also quoting from Zechariah 9, verse 9. But I hope you know by now that whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, he, you know, for lack of space and other reasons, they're referring you back to the section, not just the one verse they're quoting. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me on the cross? He's saying, read Psalm 22, the whole thing. The first verse represents the whole. Always in scripture, the, 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 the first represents the whole. The first fruits represent all the fruits. The 10% represents all the money, et cetera. Or, you know, the firstborn represents the whole family. So Jesus is telling us, Read Psalm 22 and you'll know what's happening on this cross. And likewise, all through the New Testament, um, some books more than others. I mean, you really can't understand Matthew, Luke, John, Romans, Hebrews, James, Jude, Revelation. Probably I'm leaving out a couple others unless you understand that they're not only quoting the Old Testament, but they're using word pictures from the Old Testament, and they're drawing on themes that they expect you to trace from Genesis to Revelation. And understand that this mention of this verse, like if it's going to talk about Jesus in the wilderness, they want you to go back and think about the Garden of Eden, about Israel in the wilderness for 40 years while Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and all the wildernesses of the Old Testament and that the wilderness is being restored to a garden and, and eventually will be the city of God and so forth. It's a theme that goes through the whole Bible. And so in Zechari- in Matthew, when they quote from Zechariah, it's kind of important to see uh, not just that he quotes verse 9, but verse 10 is is, is helpful in helping us find out what Matthew's trying to say. So Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters! of Zion, shout in O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, a fowl of a donkey. Now you should have recognized that from John Gray reading Matthew 21. However, the next verse says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, which is another title for Israel in the Old Testament, and the horse from Jerusalem, And the bow bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak to the peace of the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So we'll talk about that as we go through. Um, I do want to recommend that um, that there's a handout in your bulletin that I put together, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, (laughs) and uh, most most years I remember to give this out during Lent, and uh, I meant to give it out a few weeks ago. I'm sorry that it's we're down to Holy Week. But at the top, there's listed 22 of the most important chapters in Scripture for getting started understanding the passion of the Christ, the resurrection of the Christ, the Last Supper, all the things that happen in Holy Week, you know, the resurrection and so forth. Um, so those are some good scriptures to read during this time of year and reflect on. The rest of the page and the back page are other scriptures that help us understand exactly what everything that happened this week means to us. If you're not familiar with this in John, John's gospel, he starts in chapter 13 with the last supper chapter 12, as John Gray just read from is the triumphal entry that we're going to talk about today. So literally, uh, The last ten chapters of John, almost half the book, are about Holy Week. That's probably an indication that it's fairly important. That would be a guess. All right. So, uh, if you're interested in this, one of of my favorite books, uh, I'm, as you know, I'm... uh, We have lots of people in our church that are much more serious biblical studies, theology people than me. I hope maybe I'm still in the top ten or something. I don't know. But I like shorter books. (laughs) And all all the cool people like really like 700-page commentaries on this or that. And uh, it takes me like a whole year to read a book like that. So I like 100-page books that I can read in one day and so forth. But... uh, (laughs) So that's probably one reason I like this book. But th- there's a book called "Who Moved the Stone" by Frank Morrison. It's available for in two versions on Kindle for $1.99 or $2.99. Uh, and I have it in a third version on Kindle that wasn't on Kindle today. So they, whatever. Uh, Frank Morrison. A lot of you know who. Um, oh, who's the newest guy? They just came out with a movie about it. Lee Strobel. The, you know, he was sent out. Uh, he set out to prove Christianity was full of nonsense, and. A lot of people probably don't know that historically, a lot of that's happened to a lot of people over the years. Frank Morrison was a British journalist who decided he was going to prove once and for all that Christianity was nonsense, and of course became a Christian in the process. And so um, that happens a lot. Uh, Derek Prince, as you know, he was a he was what the English call a fellow of ancient languages, and his specialties were uh, Sanskrit, Hebrew. Greek, and Latin, and uh, he decided he'd read the Old Testament and Hebrew and prove once and for all that it's a bunch of bunk, and he was converted halfway through Leviticus, never even got to the New Testament before he received Christ. He never even got through the Pentateuch, for those of you who always go, I can't stand Leviticus or numbers. (laughs) I can't stand that. But uh, um, anyway, that's how far he got before he became a Christian. So one of the cool parts about who moved the stone is he takes you through the trial of Jesus, both before the Sanhedrin and, through, and before Pilate. And what he demonstrates is that the Pharisees claimed to be the upholders of the law of Moses, and they broke every law of Moses about trials in the trial of Jesus, every one of them. <laughs> it was a sham and mock trial, and finally, you know, you know, in America, we have a thing called the Fifth Amendment, that you can't incriminate yourself, um, or you have the right not to incriminate yourself. We, in America, we allow you the right to incriminate yourself if you want to. <laughs> but in, 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 the, in the law, you couldn't. You couldn't even incriminate yourself if you wanted to say, I did it, I'm guilty. Your testimony of that wasn't good enough. Right, So when they couldn't find anyone to say anything about against Jesus that was evil, they finally broke the law and they said, we adjure you by the living of God, tell us whether you're the Christ or not. And he said one of his great I am statements, there's about 40 great I am statements in the Gospel of John, and he said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man, which is the most common title used of the Messiah in the time of Christ from Daniel 7. So he's making it very clear. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. And you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of glory. And so they ripped their robes and said, you've heard the blaspheme. They condemned him on the basis of him condemning himself, which is against Moses' law. These so-called upholders of Moses' law. So Anyway, stuff like that. I, you'll, I, I think you'll like the book if you read it. It's a short one. It was written in 1930 by a British journalist who uh, you'll get to meet in heaven. He's one of those guy, old dead guys who wrote a good book. Um, so, and then I already mentioned the bulletin, uh, and then the Good Friday service. Uh, John and Emily always put together something really cool for us. Uh, I remember one year they took us through uh um some of the greatest historical paintings from Holy Week and that with uh, scriptures attached to each one and they flashed them on the screen and uh throughout the history of the church and and had a scripture meditation on each and then they kind of uh, instructed us to leave without actually talking and fellowshipping with each other, which is unusual for us. <laughs> I noticed some people didn't make it in the parking lot, but uh, <laughs> well, some people didn't get out of here without talking to each other, but uh, some people did. So I'm sure that John and Emily will have some good stuff for us. All right, so let's do a few palm study med- meditations and observations. Again, these are kind of in half. Heart, whatever haphazard order, because I'm just not that bright, so I just kind of brainstormed and said, Well, this you can get this out of this verse, you can get that out of this verse, and it's probably not as cool a stuff as John gets out of the verses, but hopefully it's worth hearing I, and it'll help be edifying to us. That would be my hope um so one thing is that is is what ha- what's happening in John twelve in Matthew 21, is Jesus is moving from often only revealing himself somewhat privately to publicly and more clearly identifying himself as the already and the coming triumphant prophesied expected Davidic king. That's a mouthful, isn't it? So let's break it down a little. Uh, You know, there's different people throughout church history. I kind of Read what John Chrysostom had to say on this in the middle of the night, and I always like to check out, uh, because I have fantasies of someday being able to be a good, you know, he was called the golden mouth, supposedly the greatest preacher in the history of the church. So I always read his comments on stuff. But um, there's this debate about how intentional Jesus was uh, letting everyone know that he was the Messiah. And it's kind of uh, something that's worth wrestling a lifetime with in the Gospels because there's places, as we're going to read, where he tells people, don't tell them what I did for you. (laughs) You know, he heals various people and said, don't tell anybody. (laughs) And there's other places where he uses messianic titles about himself and announces that he's the Messiah all over the place publicly. Now, I don't know what to do with all that. Except to acknowledge that that's a great debate in church history and fun to get into. You know, it's uh, one of my favorite uh, Christmas time books. Uh, although I, it's not really a Christmas time book, I just read it at Christmas time. Was a book by N.T. Wright called "How Jesus Became King" or something like that, or "How God Became King." It's kind of a study of the four Gospels in a somewhat kingdom of God perspective. And uh, one of the comments he makes in there, which I really liked, is. Studying the Gospels for a lifetime is a is a you know a endeavor worth really pursuing. I would encourage you to make a significant part of your Christian life to always be studying and re-studying the Gospels. Um, they will yield uh, things to you. I remember, you know, a lot of you have heard. Who you know, we talk on a more personal level, and I can usually not get through this without crying. But I remember. In 1998, I was working in sales, and it was a nice sort of situation because it was 100% commission. <laughs> so, so, uh, and I was the second leading salesman. So, you know, I kind of took lunch however long I wanted to. <laughs> and uh, normally, I actually would pack a lunch and just eat at my desk so I didn't have to take time off. And, you know, like I would have a thing of celery and. And I'd ask the customer a question, and then hit the mute button while they're answering. I eat some celery, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that's what I You know, that's how I had lunch most of the time. I, I hated when the answer was too short, and you're only halfway done with the celery. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I started in in Matthew. I remember in 1998, and you know, I don't know for sure. I was about 24 years in Christ, but I think it was probably around the 100th time I read Matthew. But all of a sudden, the Lord began to open it up to me in a way I'd never seen before, and I spent weeks in Matthew, and I was crying and outlining, and and my lunches became four hours every day, <laughs> and uh, I'd leave for lunch at noon, come back around five. You know, and the boss would be like, "Awful long lunch." I said, "You you should read Matthew," uh, <laughs> and uh, so. He was never that happy about that, but uh, we're—he's a Christian guy. We're great friends, but you know i really began to see for the first time that you know the typical view of matthew today is that matthew was written to the jews to as kind of a love letter to show that the jews had missed their messiah and so forth which is some a step in the right direction but really matthew like luke is is the final covenant lawsuit against jerusalem and against israel by the final prophet who's standing in on the on the shoulders of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah and Zephaniah and so forth. And he's representing everything that they have ever said about the covenant faithful God and Israel's adulterous, rebellious, one time after another failing to follow in his covenant. And God's had it. And so he's, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church in contradistinction to Moses' church, and I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to a nation producing the the fruit of it. And he says, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city who kills the prophets, how often I'd want to to gather you as a mother hen gathers uh, her chicks under her wing, but you would not have it. In chapter 21 of Matthew, he had called the temple my house, he says, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. But in Matthew 23, he says, your house, he disowns it completely. He says, I will have nothing to do with the temple anymore. Your house is being left to you desolate, which is the Septuagint word for, for Ichabod. There will be no more presence of God or glory of God in this house. What you saw at the end of uh, Exodus in the tabernacle, what you saw in the filling of, this, of the temple with the glory, glory of God in, in uh, Solomon's temple and First Kings 8 and so forth. This is no more. I'm departing. And Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies. And uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple will be torn down. And all of this will happen in this generation. Of course, Luke has the same theme uh, in most of Luke. Uh, But, you know, when you start, man, it was, uh, anyway, what I'm just saying is reading, you know, like reading this stuff over and over and over and over again, you will get layers of understanding every time. The clarity of Scripture helps us, here's what happens. When you first come to Christ, if God is drawing you into his kingdom, We talked about that in the first message, that the Holy Spirit convicts and draws and so forth. You will get real, true stuff out of the Scripture every time you read it. Now, it will be incomplete. You'll have more questions than answers. But you'll really start to hear from the Holy Spirit the true meaning of Scripture your first time through. And every time thereafter, as long as God gives you, by the Holy Spirit, a hunger for God and a thirst for His Spirit and a desire to know him and please him, you will get more every time. And it'll always be clarifying. It'll be clear the first time, and it'll be more clear and more clear and more clear until it's crystal clear. So, um, So this one issue, like in Matthew 16, 20, is a good example. Right after Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Remember, he takes everything in Matthew happens on a mountain. There's uh, three messages I did on mountains in the Bible, and two of them are called Mountains in Matthew. They're on the podcast. Um, everything happens on a mountain. And in Matthew 16, he takes them, the, fir- the only trip they took out of Israel, they go to Caesarea Philippi, And they go to the mountain that Herod's temple was on and the mountain where the gates of Hades was. And the gates of Hades is where the ancient Greeks worshiped the god Pan or Faun, who was uh, like Faun is the name of of a creature in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's uh, a half goat, half man person. And they did their pagan rituals and their worship, including having sex with, with goats. And so uh, the gates of Hades were kind of like the height of pagan debauchery. Uh, like, if you want to talk about how lost people can become, this was like lost on steroids. <laughs> you know, lost on lost upon lost to the lost degree. <laughs> some, you probably need some sort of engineer to figure out how lost they were, <laughs> you know, with a long mathematical equation that most of us couldn't understand. And Jesus is saying that God has judged Israel over and over and over again because he gave them his law. He gave them the wisdom of God in giving them his law. He gave them eternal truth. God still doesn't like adultery or stealing or killing, nor does he like putting other gods before him or dishonoring his holy days or anything that the law forbids. And we're not delivered from being under the law, even though Paul says that three times. We misinterpret it in modern times. We're we're released to, f- to the law in Christ. We're imp- Jesus said, "I didn't come in Matthew five, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to enforce it. That is, give empower you to do it." And so, gee, one of the provisions. The law has lots of provisions on how Israel was to treat the other nations. They were supposed to be the guides to the blind. They were supposed to love the other nations and represent the spirit and presence and truths of God to the other nations. And Israel constantly in their prejudice hated the other nations. And this is the number one reason the prophets call Israel to judgment over and over and over again among all their idolatries and their infidelities to Yahweh and, and their you know spirits of harlotry and worldliness and everything else, they are misrepresenting God to the nations. They don't even love the other nations, they hate them. Now, in the time of Christ, in in the the Hellenistic Jews throughout the Roman Empire had less of that. Than the Jews that actually lived in Palestine. And especially the Jews that lived in Judea hated Gentiles. So Jesus is taking them to Caesarea Philippi on purpose. And he's saying, I'm gonna build a different kind of church. And this church is gonna go right to the gates of Hades and storm them and liberate the captives. And we're gonna love them and we're gonna teach them and we're gonna set them free. And those gates that are for defense are not going to be able to hold out against the onslaught of his church. The Bible has nothing to do with the escapist, retreatist Christianity that has, be, has taken over evangelicalism in our day. It's actually based in fear, unbelief, and laziness. There's a book back there called Paradise Restored, on the back is a quote from Charles Spurgeon when the new escapist uh, the world's going to get darker and darker and left behind series and all that crud was first invented in the late 1800's he's Spurgeon goes on record as saying this kind of eschatology is going to become very popular because it requires neither faith nor commitment and and going by the current status of the church people are going to love it (laughs) Because it's easy to say, oh, the, bad, the world's so bad. <laughs> Let's stay away from them. That's what the Pharisees did. They were environmentalists. Like, how you stayed righteous was stay away from the bad people. But we're called to rescue the bad people. And you kind of got to get dirty with the bad people to, if you're going to bring them out of the mud. Got to jump right in the mud with them. Not taking on their inner life. But rescuing them where they're where they're at. So Jesus says in Matthew sixteen after he and this is all happening. You know Matthew sixteen is all happening right there at the gates of Hades. And after Peter says, you know, he says, "Who do people say I am?" And and then he says, "Well, who do you guys say that I am?" Peter says, "Thou art the Christ." And blessed are you, Simon. This. The church isn't built on Peter. The church is built on the revelation that Peter had, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know that's a debatable interpretation, and I love Christians who interpret it, both the common ways that it's interpreted. I'm not going to go there today. we covered that a lot of times before. But he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's the ESV. Now that word charge is, is epitemao, No, epi, epi tomorrow. Oh, that's right. It means charged, commanded, warned. Look at the other translations. Instructed. It kind of means he earnestly warned them. In other words, he said, you know, he was like John, Luke. I need you to go get uh, everyone Chipotle, and don't forget that you know John. Gray loves barbecue sauce or something, you know, whatever. But like, don't mess it up, <laughs> you know, John Bradbury, whatever. You know, like, I mean, he's saying like, pay attention to me, boy. You remember Foghorn Leghorn? I, my, my, the only cartoon character I can remember, I loved Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> pay attention to me, boy. <laughs> he's, that's what that word means. So, you know, and so sometimes Jesus is saying, don't tell him who I am. Isn't that amazing? In Mark 140, uh for through 45, I only had room for three of the verses. He sternly warned him and immediately sent him away, and he said, See that you say nothing to anyone. This is after he heals a leper, I believe. But uh, you can look it up see if it was a leper, uh, if I can remember it right. But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around. That is kind of an interesting thing. Like, don't you think if you had leprosy, if you don't know anything about what that meant socially and everything else in Jesus' day, that you'd be a little scared to not do what Jesus told you after he healed you? I'd be probably a little scared, but he couldn't stop. He went out and told everybody. And I could understand that temptation. If you had leprosy and now you're free to hang out with people. Hey, Sid, we can hang out again. <laughs> let's, let's go get some Chipotle. Uh, must be a Chipotle theme today. But, uh, but, you know, I don't have leprosy anymore. This Jesus guy healed me. Uh, he began to proclaim it freely and spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas as they were coming to him from everywhere. Now, some people call this the messianic secret. They think it's more clear and marked than the other Gospels. I'm just telling you, it's fun to wrestle with. Um... Uh, Luke 4, 16-20 is interesting because this is right after he comes out of the wilderness. So Matthew and Luke both tell us after the wilderness, they both both have the three temptations in the wilderness. Luke turns number 2 and 3 around from what Matthew's version is. They're the same temptation for number 1. And then Matthew, focusing on the Jews, tells us about Jesus starting to make disciples, proclaim the kingdom, And that the kingdom is now and it's here among us. And uh, then he announces who he is in Capernaum, or or, I'm sorry, Nazareth in the synagogue and so forth. Luke records, uh, or no, uh, Matthew is Capernaum, I'm sorry. And then Luke records Jesus in his hometown, Nazareth, in the synagogue. And it says, as it was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Synagogue is the Greek word with, sin, sin, in Lagos with the word. Synagogues are a place where you gathered to, to read the word and discuss the word. And uh, Jesus as a rabbi uh, takes the scroll and he reads. And he reads from Isaiah 61 and he opened the book and read the spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are Oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he he says today this is fulfilled in your midst. He's telling them, "I'm this guy." That doesn't sound that secretive to me. So I I don't know what to tell you to do with all this, but but just uh, enjoy it. And in Luke's version. He then goes on to talk about Elijah being sent to the, to the widow, who was not a, an Israelite. And he's kind, he begins to warn the Israelites that the kingdom is not just for you. It's for the Gentiles too. And because you've withheld it from the Gentiles, you're in big trouble. And they loved Jesus so much that they ordered lots of copies of the CD of course, these days there's podcasts. They all said, "I gotta go out and get me a laptop so I can listen to the podcast." No, they t- they tried to kill him, right? First message. I'm, you know, some people hate me, but I, no one's killed me yet. So I'm doing better. The, Jesus was in trouble from the beginning, right? <laughs> um, we all have this gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus was such. A, I, I wish you were more loving like Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we have that idea? Like, man, he, you know, he was he confronted me about this or that. He's not loving like Jesus. <laughs> well, Jesus forgot to read how to win friends and influence people. Then notice that Jesus, six um I always forget if it's 34 or 38. If you got nothing to do this afternoon, you can let me know. But he calls himself the Son of Man either 34 or 38 times, just in the Gospel of Luke. Now, every Israelite, there are certain religious cultural things in our day in the evangelical church, many of which are wrong, just like many things were wrong in Jesus' day. They were expecting a Messiah that was political, and that would raise an army and and throw those Romans out and restore the Davidic kingdom And it would be the messianic kingdom, much like the eschatology of today, expects that Jesus is going to return to the mountain of olive, set up a new kingdom in Jerusalem, and restore the temple and the sacrificial system, and the Jews will be saved by works again and by sacrifices, and Jesus will rule over the whole world, and it will be a conquest from the top-down geopolitical uh, central hierarchy and all that. That's what Christians believe today. Which is exactly the opposite message of what the Bible actually is saying. Isn't that amazing? And that's the most Bible-believing Christians. And in Jesus' day, the Son of Man was the most common title for the Messiah they were expecting. It's from Daniel 7. So when Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, nobody's missing what he's saying. Right, So the popular expectation was that Jesus was going to set up a political kingdom. So when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he rode in on a donkey, which was the way the kings of Judah Judah rode into Jerusalem. But he means something very different from what the crowds thought he was doing. The crowds thought, oh, the disciples are going to rise up and finally throw out the Romans and we're going to restore the geopolitical kingdom of David and the kingdom of God has come. But that's why you need to get this verse in Zechariah 10 about the bow of war and the horses and the chariots What Jesus and that's what Matthew is actually trying to tell you by quoting that Jesus chose a donkey because it that wasn't the way the Gentile kings did it, (laughs) they came in on like a great horse with a chariot and some really cool, you know, armor with diamonds in it, really studded out. They had bling all over the place. (laughs) And they said, I'm really important. You got to respect me or I'm going to kill you. Jesus came, just like he came in a manger, just like everything Jesus did, Jesus is actually saying, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm a different kind of king than that. My kingdom doesn't derive from this realm. My kingdom changes people from the inside out. It changes the world from the bottom up. It creates counterculture called the church, which liberates the cultures of the world. And it creates all new kingdom cultures, but we're not going to chop their heads off. And that's the difference between humanistic uh, men and godly men. Let's see it in Barabbas, and then we'll talk about it in the War of Independence and Fresh Revolution, which I didn't mean to, but I just thought of, so I'll kind of help you have that for an illustration. Later, after the arrest of Jesus, later in Holy Week, when he's brought before Pilate, what you kind of need to understand is the same crowds that cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the way, Hosanna means save or help. And it was an it was the greeting that the Jews and the Israelites did, gave to their kings. They were, they, he, they were saying, Jesus, save us. But what they thought they needed saved from was the Romans. They didn't think they needed saved from their own sin. They're thinking Jesus is going to save us from political oppression. We're going to be rich again. It's going to save us from the IRS. <laughs> uh, that would be good. But uh... <sighs> So now at the feast, the governor was accustomed, accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Does anyone know what Barabbas means? Son of the Father. Bar is Son. Abba, Father. So the Son of the Father is being contrasted with the Son of the Father. But one is the Son of, the, of God the Father, and the other is the Son of, in John 8, when Jesus says, you're of your father the devil. And as all satanic men want, they want salvation that's political and from tyrannical central governments. And Barabbas was not just a robber, he was a revolutionary. We're going to talk a little bit about the difference between revolution and the kingdom in a minute. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to him, Who do you want me to release for you, the Son of the Father, or this Jesus, the Son of the Father, who's called the Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Oh, well, he's sitting on the judgment seat. His wife sent him a message. You should listen to your wife. Uh, when you know all through the Bible, wives speak. When the wives are not speaking from God and you listen to them, you get judged. When they are speaking from God and you don't listen to them, you get judged. <laughs> so you better listen to your wife, and then you need to figure out is she speaking from God. <laughs> you know, Adam. You know, Eve was not speaking from God. But there's all kinds of times in the Bible where the wife was speaking from God. And you're going to pay a price if you don't listen, as did Pilate. But the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said, then what shall I do? With Jesus, who is called the Christ, and they all said, "Crucify him!" And he said, "Why? What evil has he done? Really, none." They knew that, but they kept shouting all the more, saying, "Crucify him!" Uh, I was actually discussing with Andy and. Yeah, Peggy, this week a guy named Michael Scanlon. He was a priest who kind of was a leader in the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, who kind of turned Steubenville University around. These days, about 80 percent of the time, if you met me to keep Catholic priest who's on fire for God, he usually went to Steubenville. And uh, he's uh, this tells you how far this goes back. I had a cassette tape <laughs> something. After church, if you want to know what that is. We, <laughs> just see any other people with gray hair. <laughs> we'll tell you. But uh, <laughs> um, it was like before the dark times when the earth's cross was still c- c- cooling. Anyway, he had like this meditation on, uh, on what's called the Stations of the Cross. But the the coolest part of it all was when he said... Lord, how often I have gone quickly from Hosanna, Hosanna, to crucify him, crucify him. If you don't realize that about yourself, you probably haven't made much progress yet with Christ. A great deal of progress comes from beginning to see the depth of our sin so that we can receive the greatness of his grace. The same people who cried out, uh, Hosanna, Hosanna. Were are the same people who cried out, crucify him. Four to five days later. Talk about fickle. So why that's, what you're going to find out is that the decision that always has to be made is Barabbas or Christ. You're making that decision every day. The church is making that decision. Fallen men are making that decision. The ancient cultures of the world were all totalitarian emperor worship, state-controlled finance, and so forth. Christianity gradually brought certain levels of freedom and so forth, which we are quickly losing worldwide as we have thrown off Christianity. Because fallen men always want the state to save us, and more of the state. But the problem is, it, you know, when you put the foxes in charge of the, of the chicken coop, who's going to watch the foxes? That's the problem with more government to save us. Salvation can only, become, can only happen by regeneration. And whoever you look to save you will become your Lord. You know, there's a whole controversy among the dispensationalists. Can you make Jesus your Savior and then keep Lord is an optional extra? You have to be pretty far gone theologically to even have that question. But that's a real question out there. Can I punch a ticket to heaven, but I don't really want him to reign over me? Remember, Jesus tells the parable to the Pharisees when they, when they say, we will not have this man rule over us. That's where a lot of the church today is at. We love reading our Bibles and going to church and doing spiritual things, but we're not about to have this man rule over us. We don't like the authority of God's Word. We don't like the authority of the Spirit. And we don't like the authority in the church. And we don't like the authority in the family. We want to do what we want to do. We don't like authority in civil government. We don't like authority anywhere. That's called Conversion. Believe me, you'll when you're converted, you want Jesus to rule over you in all the ways he comes to us. And it's always about that. That's why the war for independence in America was a very different thing than the French Revolution. The French Revolution that came out of Voltaire and, and a whole humanistic way of thinking was that the evil is in the people who have property and power. And so to, to eradicate evil, we have to kill them. And that's why the French Revolution became the revolution that, that, that eats its children. Because the ones who started the reign of terror, Robespierre himself was guillotined eventually. <laughs> in America, there's a reason John Hancock and Sam Adams, or John Adams, no, let me get my Adams right. You know, John Adams and John Hancock defended the British troops who had shot into the crowd at the Boston Massacre. Because they, and everybody was like, why are these patriots defending the troops? Because they didn't want a lawless rabble revolution. They wanted a revolution under God that is a war for independence, not a revolution. In revolutionary doctrine, like in Marxism, what the, what the Bolsheviks did is they killed all the educated people and all the people who owned property Because all people have a doctrine of sin. And in revolutionary thinking, sin is the people who have power or wealth or education already. In all thought systems, the people who have sin must be killed. There is no solution to sin except killing the person where the sin dwells. And in Christianity, Christ did that for you. You're the sinner and you have to die. But there's no thought system in the world that doesn't say there's sin something's gone wrong with humanity and we must kill everyone who has the sin in them. In Christianity, Christ has done that for us, and we need to enter into every day taking up our cross, denying ourselves and the sanctification of his killing our old nature and birthing and regenerating us anew let's turn to the back side of the page. I'm just going to get through as much as I can in five minutes and then quit so we don't go too long today. Uh, these are more thoughts on the symbolism today. Uh, you know, the stone which the builders rejected is a quote from Psalm 118. Uh, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, a gent- gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt. The foul of a beast of burden is, so- is from Psalm 118. We already quoted Zechariah earlier, uh, Matthew twenty-one nine. The crowds going ahead of him and, and those who followed him. That was was not part of the reading today, right? Or no, Matthew twenty-four, twenty-one forty-two was the top verse was not part of the reading today. But it's also a quote from Psalm one eighteen. Uh, Matthew one nine is part of the reading today. The crowd's going ahead and those who follow were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118.26. Hosanna means hail per save us." Traditionally a cry to kings for relief. The crowd's expectations and interpretations of the donkey was that Jesus was following the motto of the kings of Israel. Jesus' expectation of the donkey was that he was humble in riding a file of the beast of burden and, and not coming in like conquering kings on a horse and a a chariot. We talked about that already. Uh, Jesus enters through the gates of Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of what he did later in the week when he died on the cross and the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember? It got dark. There was lightning and thunder. and, and The veil was torn in two, and even the Roman centurion was like, he got it. He's like, wow, this was, we just killed the Son of God. And if you notice the preaching, all through the book of Acts, the apostles constantly are saying to Israel, because they continue the theme of covenant j- judgment on Jerusalem, and now the kingdom is in God's new people are always a remnant out of God's old people. What God's doing in the church always comes out of the church. And he's always taking the kingdom away from those who don't produce it, the fruit of it and giving it to the next generation of the male child that, that has authority in it that will produce the fruit of it. And the dragon is always trying to devour the male child before it gains enough spiritual momentum to get off the ground. You know what the hardest days of our church were? When we had this same vision and we had 20 people and people came here and said, they got 20 people, they must not know anything. We'll see you. They never came back again because... But we taught the same things, right? <laughs> so, um, but it's once you start getting a little momentum, people start saying, "Whoa, wait! There's a culture developing here. And people really love each other, and they're they're friendly, and they they actually study the Bible. <laughs> you know, and there's something happening here that's good because at least there's enough fruit that that uh, people can at least taste some fruit, right? So that's why the dragon always wants to kill the male child because you, a baby is most vulnerable when he or she's first born. That's why they want to kill the babies in the womb, and most human beings can't even make it uh until they're four or five. Brazil has the most uh children per capita living on the streets of any nation in the world, and most of them are at least four or five years old and they can at that time they can learn to steal from fruit stands and keep themselves alive. But a three-year-old can't make it. That's why every move of God in the church, Satan really tries to oppose it getting birthed. The more strength it gets, the harder it is to to stop it. So Jesus enters through the gates of Jerusalem foreshadowing that we would be allowed to go through the gates uh, into the presence of God. The you know the blood of Abel cried for vengeance. The blood of Jesus says, Father, forgive them and invite you to worship God and to actually enter the scene in Revelation 4 and 5 and Isaiah 6. When we worship, uh, even, you know, as a Christian, I don't know how the metaphysics of this all works out, but guess what? Guess where John Gray is seated. You might think, if you're unnatural-minded, it is seated in the fifth row of our padded pews. Because Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you comfortable. (laughs) In our padded pews and air-conditioned church. Uh, No, he's seated at the Father's right hand in heavenly places. He really is. That's where you're seated. Jesus entering the gates as a king foreshadowed that he was going to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus once and for all, a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have that great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full insurance of faith. Faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus, the only King that was worthy of entering the gates of Jerusalem, that way is foreshadowing that He's going to enter the holy of holies once and for all, and that we don't. You know, the high priest they had to tie a rope on him. Casey sinned while he was in the Holy of Holies and was killed. Jesus lives there forever making intercession for us and we are invited every day. Did you have a particularly sinful Christian day? Humble yourself, repent, bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance if you need to flee youthful lusts or get rid of your computer or do whatever. But then you're invited to come back before the king. Even if you didn't have that godly of a day, and guess what? If you led five people to Christ yesterday and six the day before, and you read hundreds of chapters of your Bible this week, and you're really, really, really saying, man, I thank God that I'm not like these other sinners. <laughs> I fast twice a week. and uh, Guess what? You can't come before God at all on that basis. You can enter because your high priest entered for you once and for all because he was the only one worthy to enter the gates. The triumphal entry foreshadows the triumph of the cross. Colossians 2, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Uh, I think you need to make sure, I hope you know about ancient triumphs. An ancient triumph was a celebration where the general and the army that conquered someone would bring the spoils of their conquering Before the king, or all, you know, uh, you know, and all the people. Uh, One of the best scenes of a triumph in movie history is go back and watch the old version of of Moses with Charlton Heston. uh, The Ten Commandments, it's called. And Moses, when he's young goes and conquers in Ethiopia and so forth, and he leads all these great chiefs. And so you didn't just bring anyone when you brought the spoils because you can't bring the whole culture. You had to continue to rule the culture. But you brought a representative sample, and you brought the kings and the princes and the rich people because they had bowed down to you, right? And what this verse in Colossians is saying is Jesus has conquered all the demonic forces, all the satanic angels, all the would be king of kings and all the would be princes and all the vainglorious men who have TV ministries. <laughs> and uh, however, his triumph is a completely different thing. Look at Ephesians 4. He led captive, kept a host of captives. What he actually does in his spoils is he brings you and me before the Father. And he says, I liberated that one. And he used to be a slave. Now he's free. He used to be bound by fears and and iniquities and lust and greed and know-it-all spirits and all manner of wickedness. And now I've set him free. And what... when he gives gifts to men, he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers, people who he liberated. And instead of conquering the princes and kings, he conquers lowly people like us and makes us the princes and kings and and makes us able to liberate others. It's a completely different trying of triumph. His, you know, the worldly leaders like to lord it all over each other and and enjoy their palaces and their great things, and he became the lowliest of servants and wants to give you the grace to be the lowliest of servants. That's the triumphal spoils. Last thing I'm going to talk about, and I'll have to leave the rest of this. Is the is the movie The Count Count of Monte Cristo? The now there's. T- Two versions, the, the, the one where Jim Caviezel is uh, Edmund Dante's and Juan Guzman is Jacopo. G- is that how it's pronounced? Jacopo? G- and uh, I love that movie because if you remember, they fight and they fight to the death. And uh, Edmund Dante, Jim Caviezel wins and he has his sword in, in uh, Luis Guzman's neck and Luis Guzman says, go ahead, finish it. In other words, thrust it through and kill me, because that's what you were supposed to do. And Edmund Dantes puts the sword back away. And Luis Guzman gets the gospel more than 99.99% of Christians today. He, real, he serves uh, Edmund Dantes the rest of his life. As a loyal, he's so loyal that when Edmund Dantes' bitterness and so forth is leading him astray, he tries to intervene and stop him. Now, that's loyalty. You know, some people think you can never rebuke a pastor. You can't rebuke an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But like Paul said, don't rebuke an older man uh, sharply, but appeal to him like a father. You know, Carla, who's sick today, she had good relational skills when she was a little girl. And she never did this once in public, nor did she do it with a haughty spirit but she would take me aside privately and say, Dad, do you think possibly you were a little too hard on that person in that situation? And she didn't even have Beth around yet to say amen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) that came later. But uh, but, uh, that is the most beautiful presentation of the gospel I've ever seen you're really starting to get it in Christ. I remember I tried to do a, I tried to do an actually exegetical teaching on Ephesus, or Ephesians, I mean, and I gave up after like 20 some weeks because I was in verse nine of chapter one. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I did a whole message on one. on the first verse when it says Paul, uh, bond servant or whatever he is of, of Jesus Christ and the, uh, Jesus Christu there is, the, is ended with O-U. There's actually no word of, but that the possessive is because of the ending in Greek. But he's basically saying, I belong to Jesus. And I thought if we could ever just understand those two words, that of Jesus Christ. Like if you want to sin, or you want to do what you want to do, if you could understand, you don't belong to you. If we could ever just get that in our heart of hearts, we would be really sanctified Christians, right? You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. that That's actually our battle every day is our flesh thinks we still have rights and we still want this and we belong to this and by golly, no one tells me what to do and we love our rebellion or whatever. But if we could ever actually, the gospel basically says, He took captive captives. I belong to him. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And like the Count of Monte Cristo movie, he gave me my life back. And therefore, I don't have any rights ever again. I belong to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for uh, endurance to go long messages. Help us to get shorter. And, uh, and to br- actually bring forth fruit in keeping with our repentance someday. But, um, Lord, we pray you would apply these words to us. Help us know that you are the king, that we enter because of you, and that your kingdom is here and now very real. And help us be your soldiers and, and understand that we have no rights. We're a new creation. We're not anything to do with our old self. We belong to you. And help us become your servants, your ministers, your ambassadors. Help us represent you more accurately, more correctly, in a better spirit every day. In Jesus' name, amen.